When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on How to Be Wrong, hosted hosted by John Cog and myself, John Trapagan. John Kay is not available today. He's off somewhere else doing interesting things. Um, so I'm going to be going solo on our journey into the nature and experience of intellectual humility and the overall value of screwing up, something I do quite well. Um, today... My guest is Dr. Glenn Sauer, who is Donald J. Ross Senior Chair in Biology and Biochemistry and Professor of Biology at Fairfield University, where he's also um, Associate Dean in the College of Arts and Sciences. Glenn's research interests include mechanisms of biological mineralization, biochemistry and cellular metabolism of trace materials, program cell death, and calcium phosphate biomaterials. Interestingly, Glenn is also a practicing Catholic Uh, And as I think as a result of this, has become deeply interested in the relationship between science and religion, uh, which he delved into his excellent book called Points of Contact, Science, Religion, and the Search for Truth, which was published by Orbis Books in 2020, in which, in fact, um, he and I did a a conversation about uh, last year um, on the New Books Network. So, Glenn, thanks. uh, Many thanks for joining us on How to Be Wrong. Well, thank you, John. Thank you for the nice introduction, um, and I'm really looking forward to having the conversation. Me too. This is a this is a fun topic for me. I think it's also a really important topic, and and I'm delighted to have you involved in this because this was really a very key point in your book, and so I think we'll have lots of stuff to talk about. So, um, in fact, I I would say that in many ways, your book was one of the things that sort of stimulated me to start thinking more deeply and seriously about this issue of intellectual humility. And so it's kind of from reading that book that has led me and, and uh, John Cog to this um, podcast that we've been doing. And so, you know, the issue has been on my mind for a while, but your work really helped crystallize a lot of ideas. So I was wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit about your work as a scientist and also a bit about your beliefs as a Catholic. And and how do you think this has shaped your ideas on intellectual humility? Okay, it's a a really good question. um, And I've been thinking about it for a while. Um, And, you know, I suppose I think about my coming up as a scientist, um, a graduate student, making mistakes in the lab being corrected by the postdocs or the professors I was working with. It's, you know, that, that sort of a corrective that you get all the time is something you can as you're churning, as you're learning, you can't, you can't really do without. It's how you become a scientist. Um, but then when you start becoming a professional scientist, you write paper manuscripts, you send them off. Sometimes they get rejected suggestions are made to how to improve you make those suggestions but the place where it really comes in at least something that really shaped my experiences was when you're writing grant proposals to the national science foundation or the national institutes of health Uh, these are major undertakings they're very difficult to do Uh, they're very exacting very time consuming and when you send one of those off and it gets rejected 
um, it's really quite a blow. And um, I've certainly had my successes with grants, but maybe I've had my share of failures as well. So um, anyway, it's in that, uh, I remember one particular time when um, a grant that I was very close to receiving got rejected. And one of the criticisms was that um, I had left off a key reference, you know, for somebody that had been working in the field. And I can only assume, I don't know this, but I can only assume the person that made that criticism was the person whose reference I had left off. I don't know that for a fact because it's a blind review. However, it was, it was greatly irritating <laughs> to me. Um, I didn't like it. I said, well, okay, I'll resubmit the grant and I'll put that reference in. But actually, it was a reference which I, I just didn't know about. I didn't deliberately admit it. I just didn't know about it. But as I put that reference in, I decided to read it. And I actually got an idea from that reference um, that made the grant overall a better grant. So it wasn't really directly related to the grant, but it improved the overall quality of it. And so the second time through, it was okay. So it, it got funded and it was well. So uh, I do, uh, sometimes it is difficult to take criticisms, um, but you know, I think we're generally better off for taking them for what they're worth. So, yeah, you raise a, I think a, a, it's a really interesting point. Uh, I've noticed, I'm sure I felt this way in graduate school too, but one of the most difficult aspects of, of graduate school is coming to the realization that uh, rejection is part of being an academic. It's not a thing that happens occasionally. It's something that happens all the time. And I, I've never forgotten when I was a postdoc at University of Michigan in a population study center there, I was walking down the hallway and some extremely prominent professor came barging out of his office, just furious because he had gotten a revise and resubmit on something. And, but it it hit me, wow, even, even the greatest of the great get revised and resubmits, they get rejected on things. They, and this is very much part of what I think our, our work as academics is about. And yet one of the things that's hard to get used to, it's, it's hard, I think, to sort of accept as the way the process is, is that there's always a collaborative quality. Even when you write a a sole author paper, there's a collaborative quality because other people are going to have input into it. Um, And you really have to kind of develop an acceptance of rejection to get anywhere as an academic. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you, if you hear people, uh, people, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a music fan. So when you hear about, hear people talking of in the music business, you know, that is, you know, that's a harsh thing that they have to deal with all the time. You know, you know, for, for every successful musician, there's 99% that weren't successful. So, um, yeah, it's, that's, it's very, <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And, and, and many of those 99% are actually very good at what they do. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and so, yeah, it's, so, you know, one of the things that we're talking about in this podcast is the, the sort of the question of mistakes and diversions and errors and things that go wrong. You kind of raise that uh, with the idea of, um, you know, dealing with things like doing a grant proposal, because, you know, there's, there's I mean, I don't know if I would call not citing that as a, a mistake, but on the other hand, it was something you missed and it made things better when you knew it was there, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, so you kind of. On the one hand, it's certainly possible that there was a bit of ego going on on the other end. If it was that person's papers, like, why didn't he, you know, 
uh, cite my paper. On the other hand, you needed to cite the paper, you know, and it's, it's just this kind of interesting process. And um, so I'm, you know, we're kind of, we've been interested in this and in, in how these things that we screw up have a way of challenging and undermining our ideas and assumptions about life, about career and so on. I was wondering if you could give maybe, you know, another example or a couple of situations, maybe a professional one um, and maybe a personal one where you, you were just clearly wrong. You realized it. Um, you got kind of moved by the situation in some way, and it changed the way that you came to look at things. And I'm curious, how, do, how did that experience maybe change you as a person? Okay, uh, that's, that's another really good question. Um, what comes to mind is um, when I came to Fairfield um, 20-some years ago, my current institution, um, I had sort of been interested in sort of the discussion between science and religion for some time as a practicing Catholic, the whole time also being a professional scientist. Um, So I'd been interested in it, um, but I did not really, wasn't really exploring it professionally. Um, But when I came, shortly after I came to Fairfield, my dean um, at the time I suppose recognized that I had this interest from my interview, although I don't really remember, you know, interviews kind of become like a blur to me. So you don't really remember everything that was said. Um, but she, my Dean suggested that I apply for this, uh, a grant that was being uh, supported by a grant program being supported by the John Templeton foundation. And it was specifically to develop courses in the area of science and religion, the conversation between science and religion. And so I wrote, um, I wrote a proposal, um, being brand new in this interdisciplinary field, I sent it off and to my surprise, it actually got funded. Um, and so I was really happy about it. And so it got funded. I started developing the course. And then the question is, where do we offer this course in the curriculum or how do we offer it in the curriculum? Um, and so I thought that perhaps if I could develop it as a science core course, um, that would be one way, an introductory science course. Um, But I thought it would also be good if perhaps it could be a course, you know, an introductory course in the religious studies program. You'll get a kick out of this. So, (laughs) so, um, So I went to the chair of the religious studies department, who I did not know at the time, I didn't know previously, and I propose this. I had sent him the proposal. I had sent him the outline previously, but then I met with him and um, his answer to me was absolutely not. <laughs> and, I, and I was sort of dumbfounded because, you know, I had written this grant. I uh, sent it to, um, you know, I, I had got it funded. I guess I thought I knew a thing or two about religious studies from my own background and from get being successful in this grant. But he pointed out to me um, during the conversation that really my, I don't have any sort of methodologies that people in his department would look at in developing this proposal. Uh, He thought that perhaps there was potential for it down the road with some more conversation between, uh, between myself and some members of his department. There was some ways we might be able to develop something, but um, you know, it was real setback to me. And in, in this case, it was sort of my naivety and thinking I knew things that I didn't know. Um, but I was sort of taken aback for a moment. Um, 
a lot of my thoughts about the conversation improved in retrospect. At the time, I wasn't real happy. Um, I didn't. Res- I don't know how I really responded in the conversation itself. But as I thought about it, it was absolutely. He was absolutely right. Um, and I thought about it. Okay, I'm used to the scientific method. What kind of methods do they use? in religious studies. And so that drew me into learning more about other types of methodologies in other fields of inquiry. And so that also helped to draw me further into um, the field of science and religion, which is where I'm spending a lot of my time now. So I'm curious, did, did I mean, this first of all, this is a really interesting, I think, widespread problem in the academic world is that we never talk to each other across you know, I mean, it, inside the humanities, let, let alone across, you know, the humanities and the, and, the, and the natural sciences. And of course, that's a just a fundamental problem. And but, you know, the other interesting thing here is that um, we don't we aren't really aware of what the methodologies might be somewhere else or that they even have them in a sense. You know, that that's something that we, we often just aren't aware of. And I'm curious if you're growing development of an understanding of the, the types of methods used in, in a field like religious studies. Has that come back in any way and influenced how you function as a scientist? Um, that's re- yeah, that's really a good question. Um, I think, I think if anything, I'm just more reflective about the way I do things, the way I go about asking questions. Um, when I, don't understand something when I don't understand a point that somebody's being made, just um, being more reflective of it and trying to view that point from their point of view. Um, and just um, so it just has helped me in that way, you know, both in the way I respond to criticism that I might get in the scientific fields, um, but also when I, um, when I, venture out into the world of science and religion and i i fully know that i don't have the same perspectives that everybody in that field has and so it's really important in these interdisciplinary fields to have that sort of uh humility to be able to listen to and try to understand someone else's point of view yeah i think it's it's extremely important it's also it's difficult you know if you kind of think about it we're trained you know in getting phd's and all this stuff we're trained to be experts we're supposed to know what we know and and it's hard not to kind of drop into the mindset that well we just know everything um, <laughs> i know yeah and, and i think unfortunately that a lot of people in various fields mm-hmm. um a lot of people get maybe they're successful in their field to a great degree and they get to start to thinking that their way of looking at the world is the only way of looking at the world. And if somebody else doesn't look at it the way I do, well, then they're just wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the source of a lot of problems. I agree. I think as you said, it, it it struck me that this is sort of the academic version of ethnocentrism. Um, It's basically what happens is we kind of have a, a discipline centrism and that this discipline is the only way to look at things the right way, and I'm in control of it, so I know the right way to look at things. Um, which is, it's really unfortunate that that happens, but it, it happens. Um, so, what would you say? I mean, in in you know, drawing off of that idea, what do you think are might be some of the most pressing or serious problems related to this question of intellectual humility? And and maybe I might turn this back and ask you even to begin. Could you define, when you think about intellectual humility, what, what would you imagine? What comes to mind um, with that 
phrase? And then, you know, what do you think the questions are in your field of study that, that are really important related to that? I think interdisciplinary, I think intellectual humility um, is, it's, it's just being able to realize that what, whatever you know about something isn't all there is to know about that thing. I mean, this is in science all the time. When one new discovery is made, it just opens new questions. And so you'll never have a complete understanding of any particular thing that you're studying. And at the same time, that knowledge that you'll never have a complete answer also draws fascination. I want to know more. And so there's always that desire to know more um, and always be seeking for that. So one of the things in intellectual humility is sort of the stance of a seeker. I want to know more. And I think that applies, at least for myself, not only to the way I, I approach science, but also to the way I approach religion. I want to know more. I mean, I believe I have a personal relationship with God. I want to know more about that. How does that work? And from another person's perspective, um, how does that relationship work for you? If you don't believe in God, how does that work for you? You know, whatever your perspective is, I want to know about that. And so um, along with that desire to know, I think there's also um, the need to be an active listener, to listen to what other people are saying, try to digest what they're saying, even if they have a completely different point of view, and probably especially if they have a completely different point of view, um, listen and uh, try to understand where they are coming from. Um, because, you know, no two people are alike. <laughs> right. And, and, and it's very hard to do when we get into things like uh, people's, you know, faith position. That's actually a hard thing to do because, you know, so you, you, you said, okay, I, I have a personal relationship with God and this is what I think is going on. And then here I am at the other side and I, I don't have any relationship with anything that's a deity. Um, I'm not really a hardcore atheist. I'm kind of an ag- agnostic with atheist leanings. I, my attitude is kind of like, well, it doesn't seem like we can either really prove or disprove it. So I, I don't really want to come down hard and say there is no God. Um, but the other side is I have no experience of it, nothing. And, and I think that's to me, as I think it is for you, this is a, this is sort of a flashpoint where we can have an interesting conversation. Well, what does it mean to have that experience? What does it mean not to have that experience? And that's how knowledge grows. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And even, you know, if picking off on what you just said, you say you have no relationship and I say I do have a relationship, but we all have relationships with other people. And a lot of people that believe they have a relationship with God find that relationship through those other personal relationships. And so a lot of times it's simply, sometimes it's just the languages that we speak or the perspectives that we have or our background and our upbringing that colors the way we view these, these things. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're biological beings that get programmed from birth and, um, you know, our environment plays a big role on, on how we come to see the world. And, and I think actually my own perspective is that one of the things that really does sort of in some ways differentiate humanity is we have the capacity to sort of violate that program. We can go back against it and say, well, this is what I was raised to think, but that doesn't make sense to me anymore. I'm going over here. And and I think that's, for me, a big part of what intellectual humility is about, is that capacity to say, you know, what I thought was the case isn't the case, or it's been modified. Um, 
And I, you, you raise, a, I think, a really important point that we can never get complete knowledge of anything. We've, we've always got this kind of partial knowledge of things. And I, I, I think that, um, well, one of the things I've thought a lot about is, is in, in this whole pandemic thing that we've been dealing with is that one of the root causes of all the friction has been the inability of a lot of people in the general public to realize that science does not give us definitive answers to anything. And so, you know, Dr. Fauci's out there and, and he says one thing one week and then it changes a little bit next week and everyone's saying, oh, see, he changed. No, science happened. We, we got a little better understanding of this. And so we need to change what we're doing. And I just, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that and why, why things work this way. Um, well, I think, um, you know, oftentimes, well, like you said, science is changing all the time. So every, every new discovery leads to further discoveries. Um, you know, we net, we, when the pandemic hit, nobody really knew what was going on and people were trying to take their best guesses, their best shots based on what they knew from previous experiences. Um, some of those things were correct. Some of those things were wrong. And we constantly change this. Um, I think we, I think there's a tendency in our culture today, maybe more so than it was maybe 20 years ago, that people are reticent to say or admit that they're wrong in some way. If you admit that you're wrong, somehow that's portrayed as a weakness. Um, it's certainly portrayed as a weakness in our political circles. I mean, when was the last time you ever heard a politician say they were wrong about something? So, um, but that's what, I mean, admitting that you're wrong, that's also a stance of humility. I mean, that's, you know, that's where, that's what we have to be. We have to be willing to be wrong. If, if anybody would tell you that they were never wrong, they're lying to you. So, because, <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's uh, politically that's where we that's where we are. Um, I think um, you know, in my own field of science and religion, there's so there's there's scholars sort of in the middle, if you will, who um, want to have conversations. You know, theologians want to talk to scientists, scientists want to talk to theologians, and so forth. But on the opposite sides of that, there are. Um, there are scientists, some scientists, who are outspoken, who believe that their way of looking at the world is the only way of looking at the world, and they perceive religion as the cause of a lot of problems. Um, then there are people on the religious side of things, particularly some fundamentalist Christians, who think that their way of looking at the world is the only way of looking at the world, and that they're absolutely right. And the two of these go back and forth um, and create tensions that, you know, the popular media oftentimes picks up on and they hype that because really what the media is interested in is, is selling something, whether it's either books or whether it's people watching the TV show or whatever it is. And so that combat is there when really um, in the field of science and religion itself, it's more about conversation. It's not about these extreme sides of things. Now, unfortunately, I think there's bad consequences of that because if um, the people on the religious side are not willing to listen to the scientists about evolution, for example, because they disagree with it, because for whatever reason, then 
they're also likely to disagree with other things that scientists like tell them, like global warming or like the cause of the pandemic or something like that. Um, and so having this prolonged tension, although it might sell things, I don't think it's it's productive for society in the long run. Yeah, you, you touch on something, uh, I think, really powerful here that uh, I've been reading a book um, about Eugene Debs. I don't know if you're familiar with Eugene Debs. Eugene Debs was a um, uh, actually the, the most prominent uh, socialist in the early part of the 20th century, and he ran for president several times and ultimately as a result of the Espionage Act of 1917, wound up spending, uh, going to jail, uh, basically for sedition because he was a pacifist and was anti-war and he was a socialist. And he, he wound up running for president from prison in 1920 and got close to a million votes. Um, but the interesting thing is he would talk about the capitalist media. And, and of course, he's talking about it from the perspective of socialism and saying we need to do away with this. But the problem is that the infusion of capitalism in the media puts us in a situation where the presentation of information becomes a sales issue. And so it, it then it, it emphasizes, well, it's much easier to sell things if we've got people on either side of the issue in a very sort of harsh, clear way, because then we can sell the fight. Um, and I, that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think about our, uh, our, our news networks, which we have in the United States and um, whether it's on the right or whether it's on the left, most of them, most of what they do is pick up on something the other side says and be outraged about it. And so they're selling that outrage. You don't hear any discussion of new ideas. I mean, surely there's good ideas on the left and surely there's, although they're hard to see these days, there's, (laughs) (laughs) there's good ideas on the right. We should be having an exchange of ideas because we have big problems. We just came through the pandemic. We're not completely done with that yet. We still have climate change and all sorts of, we have war in the Ukraine. We have all sorts of problems to address, but we're just shouting about something the other side said, and we're not getting anywhere. Yeah, I, I, I think that is that sums it up. And, and I think it, in some ways it comes back to what you also said you know, a few minutes ago about this, particularly in the last 20 years or so, this sort of demand that we be right and never be wrong. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about how often now you will hear people complain because a politician said something 45 years ago that's the opposite of what he's saying today. Well, 45 years ago, I was thinking some pretty different things from what I think right now. And frankly, I'd be a lot more worried if nothing had changed in those 45 years with that politician than if he had just consistently thought the same thing all along, because it means he's not learning anything. Exactly. Exactly. He's, you know, so where are his, where are, where are his or her values anywhere? If they're, you know, a a comment that uh, a pastor of mine from a few years ago said one time, I was in an adult discussion group um, and I don't even remember what the topic was we were talking about. But it was something to do with faith and belief and so forth. And he said, and it was surprising to me coming from a priest, if you never question your faith, you will eventually lose it. And so if you never question something, you're going to lose it. So I think we need to, 
just be honest and admit that, yes, I look at things differently now than I did five years ago or 20 years ago. And this is how my thoughts have changed. And I think that would be such a more productive way of thinking about people. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think actually, again, it's a sign that good things are going on. If your thoughts have changed, that means you're, you're reflecting, you're, you're looking at what's happening around you, you're thinking about things. If they never change, th- then you're just not aware that what's around us is changing. And so you, you have to change. Um, yeah, it's. I, I think we're in a very bad spot because of this right now. I, I think, think we are. I think yeah. we are. I think it's yeah. precarious. I mean, sometimes... Sometimes I look at it and I don't actually see a way that we're going to get out of it. Um, yeah. And then it gets, <laughs> then it gets very depressing, of course. So, um, um, yeah, it, it, it will take people admitting that they were wrong. They'll change their view in some way. Um, yeah. I mean, that's what it will take. And I don't know how we get there. I don't either. It's really, really bothered me because it, it just seems that we're just so ossified in this kind of position that, that we, we can't let go enough to say, you know, well, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. So I started thinking about this um, today or no, yesterday, excuse me. And um, so I'm, you know, I'm relatively left wing in my politics. I'm not a fan of war. And I am not a fan of the enormous military spending we've done in the United States. I think we spend, you know, we spend what? Double what the Chinese spend at least. And I've always felt, well, we we should spend a lot less. And then the Ukraine happened. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at what was going on with the way Putin is acting and the risk we're at. And I have to admit, I've started thinking, huh. All right, maybe I'm still not a fan of the way we're spending it, but maybe that massive spending is the thing that has prevented World War III from happening. I don't know. I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. So, um, yeah, it's a scary situation. Um, Just yesterday, I was discussing with my son the war in the Ukraine. And, um, you know, he's you know it comes down to a question of how does how is it how this how is this going to come out how is it going to end um and the way it ends is either putin wins relatively quickly which i don't think is a good thing or it bogs down and of course if it bogs down it's a bloodbath for both the ukrainians and the russian soldiers that are being sent in there against their will they don't want that war um, they, they don't want to do that. Um, and so unfortunately, because of that belligerence on his part, um, you know, this is where we are in the world. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then you start thinking, okay, so for whatever reason, you know, he took, he took advantage of a moment and, and, um, you know, is China now thinking, oh, well, look, uh, maybe this is our opportunity with Taiwan. Maybe, maybe while they're looking the other way. I mean, and, and you know, so it's, it's, I think we have to be able to look at things like world events and step back and say, I've got my principles. I don't want to spend this much money on the military. I'm not a you know fan of doing that. But on the other hand, the reality of our world, okay, maybe that is what we have to do right now. I, and I'm not really advocating for it, but I think, we should always be in this position where when world events happen or whatever happens around us, 
we should be able to kind of go back and rethink our position and ask, is this really the right position, regardless of where we come down on it? And Right. And the other thing is we have to engage. We have to engage with the other countries. Um, you know, in past times, you know, there was a sort of isolationist view to uh, certainly at the beginning of World War I, for example, there was this isolationist view that we shouldn't get involved, I think also in World War II. And that doesn't help things either. So we have to engage, whether it's militarily or diplomatically or now through sanctions in some way, we have to engage with the world around us because, you know, there's... <laughs> There's a lot of people in this world <laughs> and we have to, we have to get along or like you suggested, um, it doesn't turn out well in the end. No, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, the stakes with this are, are extremely high and, and um, you know, and, and the, the capacity, for example, for NATO to respond is limited because the stakes are so high. Um, you know, I, I would, you know, part of me might say, well, yeah, I think it would be great if we could send troops in, but we can't send troops in. That would, that would be crazy. Um, and, you know, so we're, we're kind of, I, I think one of the things that's really racist is that we should be constantly engaged in this kind of, in a sense, almost self-doubt. Um, you know, this question of, all right, well, is what I thought was right. Is that still right, given what I'm seeing happening around me? And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of people in the political, you know, field don't do this very well, and and also a lot of the general public don't want to do this. They they're you know they want to have the answer. Um, yeah, I you know it it completely. <laughs> I'm completely troubled by the fact that um, you know in the political world we're in right now, um, the right side of the political spectrum is frequently the one that is quick to say, I love democracy, you know, wrap themselves in the flag, but yet they'll look the other way over the Capitol riots, which essentially was an insurrection. And uh, they won't say that. Um, and is it because of fear? I mean, or just the desire to hold on to power? I mean, whatever it is, I don't understand it. But um, I don't understand why the Capitol riots was not an outrage to everyone in this country. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I, I agree. And, and, and I suspect part of it is because, you know, for many people holding on to power is the thing that matters. Not, mm -hmm. not really the, the sort of, um, the fabric of what we're doing as a right. society. And, and, and if it, if the, if the answer becomes holding on to power, then humility is not part of the discussion. No, humility is not there then no. it's all about just arrogance and you want to hold power because you have power and right. you know the right way. So, yeah. <laughs> so. And, and it brings us right back to our discussion, you know, the academy. I mean, the same thing happens in academics. It's, you know, you get into a position where you're at the top of your field, you have power, whatever it is, you want to hold on to that. And it becomes easy to fall into a sense of, okay, I've got the answers, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. um, don't have to really discuss it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So this, this kind of brings us around to, you know, kind of the, one of the big questions of the podcast. And, and so you've done an interesting thing in your career. As we've talked about, you've placed yourself intellectually and professionally at the crossroads of religion and science. That's, a, that's an interesting spot to be in. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about this increasing polarization of the scientific and the religious, particularly the Abrahamic perspectives of, of life in the world. I think 
when you get into things like Buddhism, you see much less of this because Buddhism really doesn't have problems with science. And so Mm -hmm. that's not so much of an issue, but I'm curious if, you know, first of all, what your thoughts are about how we might address this, but um, you know, this kind of dichotomy, but I'm also kind of curious about your experiences having situated yourself in the middle of that. What kinds of problems do you think you've run into intellectually, professionally, if any, um, as a result of choosing to kind of stand in that spot? Well, it's, um, it's an interesting spot because, you know, a lot of my colleagues um, in the sciences don't sometimes get what I'm doing. I'm engaging in this interdisciplinary discussion about science and religion. Um, and sometimes, I mean, I mean, people here at Fairfield know me now, so they know I've been here for some time. But initially, it's like, um, you know, I think about some of my friends in the philosophy department or the religious studies department. And it's like, why is this guy coming here talking to me about this? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's in a way it's um, you're standing outside of disciplines. And so in a way, professionally, that's a little bit difficult. Um, for me personally, it's a very interesting way to engage. It's very interesting. Um, it has taught me um, again, to be a better listener. Um, it has taught me to be a better listener to my family, to my students, um, whether they are science and religion students or whether they're biochemistry students, which is mostly what I teach. Um, so really it's an opportunity for me to become a better listener, I think is, is the main thing that has benefited for me personally. And I think that has helped in my own relationships as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, do, do you think, this would have been the same, say, I don't know, 50 years ago? In the science and religion field? Yeah. Or? yeah. Do you, how do you think people might have responded, you know, half a century ago to someone who placed themselves sort of in between these fields? Um, I think I think the first people that did that, you know, I think of Ian Barber, who sort of looked at as the founder of science and religion. Um, I think he... Um, I think he found himself on the outside of things. I think he probably, I never met him. I don't know him. Um, I, I think he must have thought he was being ostracized <laughs> in a lot of ways um, because uh, he, um, he was really on the outside of things. And so, but over time, enough people have been interested in this field that enough conversation has developed that's not either this way or that way. Um, that um, I think it has become an interesting field um, for engagement um, with other scholars. And part of the thing that's fascinating to me is just this, the ways in which different disciplines thinks about things is endlessly yes. fascinating to me. So Yeah, it, it, it really is interesting the way we construct a question, just, just the, 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 the root way we go about thinking about a question or you know, for example, in the natural sciences, the hypothesis-driven way of approaching questioning. Um, whereas, you know, I get my as an anthropologist, people do hypotheses in anthropology, but as a cultural anthropologist, I just ask a research question because um, I have no idea where it's going to go most of the time, yeah, and I, yeah. I, you know, don't even have a clue. And and so, um, and you know, you lead, that leads to very different ways of going about conducting research and and yeah, it does in creating knowledge. Yeah, you know? it does. It really yeah. does. I mean, the scientific hypothesis driven is 
this is my question. It's going to turn out this way or that, or it's going to turn out this way, or it's going to turn out that way. And if it goes this way, I'll go there. And if it goes that way, I have to rethink things and then come back to it again. So there's very much, um, you're always trying to disprove a hypothesis in order to find support for what is actually the correct way, the world, the correct understanding of what we should be thinking about. Yeah. So I'm kind of switching gears just a little bit before we kind of wrap up. You said you're interested in music. I'm curious, what, what is your interest in music and, and how does that kind of come into play with this sort of thinking? Well, my interest in music is, I you know, all the way back to when, I mean, I'm a rock and roller, so I love rock and roll. That's the kind of music. Although I did have some formal music training, I was, I, I learned to play the trumpet when I was a kid. My mom was insistent that all her kids learn some sort of musical instrument. Um, and so I learned to play the trumpet. I was in the marching band all through high school. Um, in, um, in uh, I guess it was high school probably, I got a guitar and I started playing the guitar. I'm not very good at it, but I still like noodling around on it a little bit. Um, and so, and I like listening to rock music. And um, it's it's... It strikes me over the years that um, so many times I'm doing something and a lyric from a song I haven't listened to for a long time pops into my head that seems to sort of explain the situation I'm dealing with right now. And then I'll get home from work and I'll put that record on. It's like, oh, yeah. So so anyway, so that it, it really sort of nourishes me in a lot of ways. Um, you know, listening to music on the way back and forth to work. I mean, it just I just find a lot of nourishment in that. Yeah, music for, I mean, I, I come from a family of musicians, and uh, it's my, my father's a retired professor of music, and I played music my whole life. I was also in marching music. I was in drum corps when I was in high school and stuff like that. And um, but one of the things about music that strikes me is that I think kind of like this conversation, in some ways it occupies a middle ground. There's this very rational quality to the way music works, and then there's this very emotional, experiential quality to it, and it, it brings very different things together into the context of the experience of playing or listening. Um, and and I think to me that's always been one of its attractions. Yeah, I think so. I mean that there is that emotional impact, and um, a lot of times I'll hear a song that I haven't heard in a long time, and I'll remember exactly what I was doing when. I heard that song last or when I saw that band play and what else was happening in my life when I saw them play. Um, so there is that way. It's a, it provides a connection, I think, um, a reference point in our lives. So. Yeah. And learning a musical instrument certainly does um, sort of um, add humility to one's life. <laughs> that is for sure. That yeah. is for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that is for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem to matter how good you get. You just look at it and go, wow, I could be a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, so that's one of my yeah. great regrets is like, you know, with my guitar, not so much the trumpet because, you know, I did it because my mom wanted me to do it. And so, and, and, and I had a lot of good experiences because of that, being in the band, going on trips, things like that. But I really wish once I had picked up the guitar, I would have just stuck with it more consistently um, because I would love to be able to play well. Um, I can't play well, um, but that is one of my, that's personally one of my regrets in my life <laughs> that I never stuck with it to the degree that I could have. So, 
Yeah, there are always things like that. Um, you know, you think about some other roads that we might have taken and things and uh, the path that we might have gone on. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as always, this has been a really fun conversation, really interesting conversation. I'm curious, do you have anything else you'd like to add to what we've been talking about? Um, I just wanted to I just wanted to mention briefly, um, I, I know I told you in this by email that um, you you had mentioned at the outset how the book that I had written sort of stimulated your thinking about this and the vice versa. I mean, I read your book, Embracing Uncertainty, and um, it really had me thinking about basically that question of uncertainty and how we approach uncertainty. Um, and I think as you framed in that book, um, some cultures, some traditions um, have an easier time with that than others do. Um, and um, so I wanted to thank you for that. And I think that's a, I think, I think that was a great read as well. So. Well, thank you. It was your book that stimulated me to write that. <laughs> I, I read it and was like, wow, this really has got me thinking. And, and I do think that um, part of a, a very central part of the problem we're facing today is this sense that we can't have uncertainty and that, that gets back to having to be right and, and not changing your position and this kind of thing. But there's nothing wrong with uncertainty. In fact, we're confronted with it constantly. Um, and, and so, you know, then the question really to me ought to be, how do we learn to live with the fact that things are uncertain and, and make that part of our lives instead of trying to push it as far away as we yeah. can push it, you push it away. So, yeah, yeah, you push it away. And I don't know if that's because of, I mean, what I come to when I think about this is oftentimes people are fearful. And a lot of times it's fear that causes us to shy away from putting ourselves out in that open area where you might be faced with uncertainty, where you don't know the results of what's going to happen. Um, and so that fear, that underlying motivation of fear, um, I think... Um, is something that a lot of people are grappling with. And I think um, just my own sort of two cents about this, our current economic system in this world has a lot of people fearful. Um, my kids' generation, they're afraid that they're never really going to get good career opportunities. They're never going to be able to have later on in life what they have right now. Um, and and that's unfortunate. Um and so I think if we can address fear in some way, maybe that'll make people a little more willing to face the uncertainties in the world. I think that's, that's very true. And I think it also, if we could Im- Im- address fear, it would make people more able to be openly accepted they're wrong sometimes and, and, and embrace the fact that, okay, I got that one wrong. Uh, I learned from it, but there's nothing to be afraid of about being wrong. But of course in ours, Right. But, you know, in a society like we have where, you know, if you're wrong, um, you might lose your status or something like that. Then there is fear with that um, because we don't haven't really created an environment that allows people to say it's OK to be wrong with things and, and to learn from that. So that's a, that's a great observation. I think fear is at a root a lot of a lot of what we're facing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, as always, again, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. And, um, you know, thanks for joining me. Yeah, I, I, thanks for having me. I have really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, I'll be looking forward to our next one. That sounds good. All right, Glenn. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Okay, take care.